Good evening. How's everybody see you? Good? Good. Glad to hear that. <laughs> What's that, Ken? Now, is that for Sue or when Tony preaches? You know, you set me up there. Love you, Tony. Let's, let's open with a word of prayer. Lord, we're so grateful to have the opportunity to come into your house once again. And whether it's a Sunday morning, a Sunday night, during the week, Lord, this is, this is your house. And we're so grateful to come to our Father's house and feel comfortable and welcome in your presence and with our siblings here. Lord, we're so grateful for the pastor you've sent us and the message he brings us and the fellowship you give and grant each one of us just for being here and just being part of your family. We ask your blessing on the service tonight, Lord. You may bless and guide us and, and open our ears to what, what you have given Tony to say. Bless everything we say and do, Lord, in this house. This is we ask your name. Amen. What if you all stand and sing with me? Um, number 34, How Great Thou Art.
Any uh, any birthdays in the house this evening? Birthdays or anniversaries? Tomorrow? Tomorrow? Is that right, Tony? What? Oh, you're. I, thought, I looked back. I thought it was Christy saying that. No glasses. <clears throat> oh yeah. How, how long? Three years. Congratulations. Say happy anniversary to them. Why not? We're here, right? What? A birthday. Well, we'll do. We'll happy birthday. Happy birthday to Three years and they're still arguing over just they're going to do a song or not. Yes, Bob. Well, we're going to recognize your anniversary tomorrow or today? Today. Today. How many years? 29. How many? 29. Okay, well, I'm done. Congratulations. Any word of testimony this week? I know. It was raining and dreary out. No word of testimony. No good word this week. I'm, I'm happy this week. I... My Amber's going back to work this week. She, her job was dissolved about a month and a half ago where she was working, and she, she enjoyed her time off. I enjoyed her time off because we got a lot of stuff done at the house, but uh, the, the slave has to go back to work now. So uh, I, I said this morning that we were, we were out late and got in late last night. I'm, I'm blessed for our traveling graces and traveling mercies wherever our trio goes that we remain safe and make it back home. Uh, we have a good time going out and singing different places, but it's so good to be home. Sometimes we do it through split eyes or, or three or four gallons of coffee, but we, we get home. Um, any, any, uh, yeah? I was blessed to be married to this amazing man. I, <laughs> I saw him hand you $5. Is that part of the... It should have cost more than that. Yeah, probably already has, yeah. Good. Well, that's... <laughs> We have. Well, amen. That's sweet. Yeah. I don't know how he ended up in Chicago, but from Pittsburgh. Yeah. I didn't know that was a big city in Chicago. It really is. Yeah. That makes Andy uh, or uh, Tony Andy Griffith, I guess. Anybody else this evening? Good. Glad to have you back. Got to see some little ones, didn't you? That's great. Sue, I'm glad to see you back in the pew here. I hope everything's working out for you. And good. Anybody else? Okay. Do we uh, we have our offering at this time? Or all right.
Lord, we thank you for the uh, the, the strength to work, for the, for the opportunity to earn, and Lord, for the desire that you give us to to give and to contribute back to our community, to this church, and to your kingdom. We're so thankful for these gifts that you've given us so we can return the gift and bless others. We pray, uh, pray your blessing, Lord, over every money, every time, every offering that is given in your name that we may further your kingdom here on this earth. These things we ask your name. Amen. Good evening, everybody. Open your Bibles to the 11th chapter of Hosea. Hosea chapter 11. There's a way uh, in which you could introduce a series through Hosea with chapter 11. Um, The gracious heart of God and His relentless love permeate this book, even in pronouncements of judgment. And the basis of that is found primarily here in chapter 11. Here the heart of God is revealed. Uh, it's astounding. It's confusing in a way, but it's true. It's here. God presents himself in Hosea 11. God does a lot of this in Hosea, uh, this, this revealing of himself, but here as a doting and a broken-hearted father. And one of the commentaries describes chapter 11 as getting a glimpse of the family photo album, so to speak. We see the day of Israel's adoption, their first steps, God patching up the bruised knee and all that, the father lifting up the baby for a kiss, but it's all shot through with pain. There's a lingering sadness in all of it because the more that God loved this rebellious nation, the more they rejected him. Which means in chapter 11, we see God's heart, but we also see our heart. We see the nature of God. We see the nature of ourselves. We learn what is at the root of God and what is at the root of us. One picture is beautiful. The other is devastating. Which heart will conquer? Right? Which heart will get to write the end of the story? The reality of who the Holy God is, is the sinner's only hope for salvation. Let me pray for us before we get going here. Father, I thank you so much for the enduring, consistent, perfect truth of your word. Father, that you never cease declaring who you are as a Savior of sinners to us in this book. And so, God, I pray that that's how we would hear you and see you tonight, that your Son would be revealed to us through this text like every other. And I pray that you would please help me preach to those that have come and please help everyone that's here be able to understand and listen. And I ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me read the first four verses of Hosea 11 to you. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. Uh, The first time that Scripture revealed that God would think of Israel as His Son was in Exodus 4, 22 to 23, and what God instructed Moses to tell Pharaoh when he got there. Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. God demanded that Pharaoh let his son go free so that father and son might be united in worship. And if he didn't, Pharaoh's son would pay the price. And that's precisely what happened. Right? We know that story because um, human beings aren't just rebels. We're hopelessly stubborn rebels. That's what Hosea 1 looks to, the childhood of the nation when God first chose them to be His people and set His love on them, when God called Israel out of Egypt, He was calling His Son to freedom, right? Israel was given an identity in the Exodus um, through God's rescue of her to be His very own child. 
and the sordid details of Israel's history read like they do because Israel never lived out of that identity. They never truly realized who they were. Uh, They didn't remember that they were called out as a son, that they belonged to God. They forgot they were liberated children and they kept seeing themselves despite what God said. This is what you take from their history. That apparently they kept seeing themselves as desperate orphans who needed to shore up protection and prosperity from wherever or whomever they could find it, including other nations and other gods. That is not just sin and rebellion. It's it's a, a, a forgetting of who they were, of who God called them to be. You read in verse 2 here, the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Why would a child keep running away when their father calls to them to protect them? Why would a child do that? If I was, maybe we can think of it like this. If, if, if we were at a park, if, if, if all my kids were still small, probably, and I saw one of them running and they were going to run in front of a car and I screamed at them, stop! Imagine if my screams scared them, because I'm screaming, and now, in that moment, what they fear is my punishment. So they just keep right on running, right? This is, in essence, what Israel was doing, although I wouldn't label it as innocent as if, as if a kid was running in front of a car. I think they knew what they were doing. But the more God pursued them, the, the fact of the matter is, the more God pursued Israel to return, to repent, the more He stretched out His arms to them to come back, the farther they ran. Why? They did not trust His grace. They did not believe in His love. They forgot they were His children. But the imagery here in verses 3 and 4 is so tender. I mean, that's how... Think about that. For those of you who are fathers, every time you've ever reached out to your child like that, or or when you help them learn how to walk, we'll talk more about that in in a moment, but God chooses to portray Himself like that, to this rebellious and adulterous nation. That's how he saw them. Again, you, I, I remember those things. I'm sure any father in here does. You remember those moments when they first learned to walk and when you, you, you held them up and you kissed them, when they wanted you to hug them, right? It's a big deal in my house if, if, if my two oldest daughters let me hug them or initiate a hug. I, I, I write my wife if one of my kids initiates a hug. Like, you will never believe. The other day, one of my daughters, I don't want to put her on the spot, but we were talking about something, and she, she texts me, love you, Dad. I took a screenshot and wrote my wife. I could, I was so, I, I literally, I literally got tears in my eyes in my office. Right? I mean, that's how, so imagine now God is choosing to portray Himself like this to a rebellious child. I mean, that's, there's a tenderness here. That is almost, it's, it's like it's too big to grasp because it's God we're talking about. And yet he portrays tenderness like, like a, a father. That's how God portrays his own actions with Israel. But then in the text, the image changes. Israel took God's care apparently. And how, how human is this? How, how much experience we have with this? Israel took God's care as some sign of his disapproval of them. Of, of his uh, holding them back, right? Of, of his re- restriction over them. Like a child who thinks his parents are being cruel because they make him take his medicine every night because he needs it so badly. I became a burden to them because I cared for them, is, is how God is talking. God says uh, he, he picked them up to care for them and love them, but they kicked at him and tried to tear themselves away from him as though he was oppressive to them. And God's heart is broken by it. It's broken by it. Look at 5 through 7. <coughs> they shall not or they shall surely return to the land of Egypt. They, they mean the same thing here. But Assyria shall be their king because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, He shall not raise them up at all. So long ago Israel was enslaved by Egypt, but now 
They'll be enslaved by Assyria. But again, as we've seen throughout Hosea, Assyria is like a recapitulation of Egyptian bondage. A rebellious and obstinate son, trusted in himself, fought for his own way, broke the bonds of God's oppressive love off of himself and ventured out into the world to find itself. Again, how human is this? Right, I remember, maybe you remember being a young man and, and, and just thinking that I was going to shake off the yoke of my mom and dad, get my own place, live my own life, right? And it's, I, I remember when that came to a head, my dad, <laughs> I was so horrible to my mom. My dad one night, my dad worked overnight cleaning offices. He came home, I'm, I'm still awake. He, he just, pushed me up against the closet door in the kitchen, the pantry door. Like he, and my dad comes about to right here on me, I think. Pushed me up against the wall, right into my face, against that door, and said, I hear you've been a real pain to your mom lately. And I'm looking at him, I'm like, dear God, please don't. Just please don't. And he said, it's time for you to move out, son. He, didn't, he wasn't kicking me out. He, he was saying, it's, it's time for you to... This is not going to work anymore. Does that make sense? He wasn't kicking me out. He's saying, you think you're a man, so move out. <laughs> Pay for your own stuff, right? That, that was, just, we, we, we see this throughout our own lives. It's, it's like you can relate so well to God in this text, which is what makes it so tragic, considering what God had done for Israel here. Long ago they were enslaved. Now they'll be enslaved again. You have this rebellious son that, that, it's, it's just like that. I, I need to get out from under your rules and under your oppression. And now they're going to be overcome and destroyed by war and slavery and exile. right? And, and though they call out, God will not deliver. They've broken the covenant. It's too late. This is what they deserve. There's no denying that. This is the bed they've made. But God is not like us. God is not like us. He doesn't work on the same scale. And that should blow our minds. In other words, if there's a just reaction to rebellion on earth, how much more just is the reaction of God to the sins of His creation? Right? How much more just is that? You don't get more just than the justice of God against His rebellious creation. God isn't bound to anything outside Himself, though. Right? He's not bound to anything else. He's God. He makes all the rules. And He doesn't work on the same scale that we do. And so we read, in light of Israel's guilt, this in verses 8 and 9. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. This is God talking. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. It's there. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man. The Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. That's the heart. 8 and 9 are the heart of Hosea's whole message. And the Old Testament scholar uh, Gerhard von Rod says of these verses that they are an utterance whose daring is unparalleled in the whole of prophecy. In the first seven verses is the account of a father's love for his children, but they've acted like a rebellious son who deserves judgment. Is there any hope for them? Yes, and shockingly because God is God. You would think that would be why there's no hope for them. Right? Because they've been rebellious. And yet the reason there's hope for them is because God is God. It's what is being revealed here. The evidence demands one verdict for Israel. Guilty. There's no doubt. Judgment is coming. And we find out that God is in anguish over it. Adma and Zeboim were two of the five cities destroyed when Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. And God can't bear to think of the same thing happening to His own people. I mean, it's just, it's just a, a, 
God revealing something about himself here that, that is just... When God... God is not vulnerable. And when he presents himself as vulnerable, it's almost too much to bear. I, I don't know what to make of it. I, I just It's just unreal. And notice this. The, 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 God will turn from his anger at their sin because he is holy. Look, look, look at verse 9 again. I will not execute my burning anger and I will not again destroy Ephraim for I am God and not a man the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. That's strange. I thought the holiness of God was precisely why God judged sinners. And here His holiness is why He doesn't judge, finally, fully. Look at verses 10 and 11. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. Now that's interesting. If I'm ever anywhere and I hear a lion roaring, I'm not running towards the roar, unless you're one of those absolute idiots on the internet that just, let's play with this lion. Right, let's see if it, if it minds being smacked around a little bit. And that I'm not running towards it. Right, look, look, look at that. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. So, a day will come when his children will return home to the Lord. That remnant within Israel and all his people, we're going to see this all, again, be applied to the world, to his people all over. If you remember that example I used of a parent yelling for a child, and the shout scares them and they fear punishment, so they keep on running, this roar will bring them back. So it's got to be a very unique kind of of roar. They'll come back trembling, yes, but they'll come back nonetheless. And what will mark this merciful move of God that brings back His children? God Himself will roar like a lion. It will be a call so loud, so unmistakably merciful, it will sound like a lion roaring. Imagine such an event, such a moment. And there are three things in this text that I think converge to point us to its message. The first is in 11.1. Look back at verse 1. We get some markers here. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now, the second part of verse 1 is quoted in Matthew 2.15 as a prophecy that was fulfilled by Jesus after Joseph took the family by warning of an angel to Egypt when they returned to their homeland, after the death of Herod. Matthew reads, this was to fulfill them coming back from Egypt after Herod died. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Hosea, out of Egypt I called my son. Now, imagine you live in this time and you're reading this in Hosea's time, would you have read a past tense verb in Hosea, or would you now, about Israel being delivered from bondage in Egypt through the Exodus as a prophecy about the coming Messiah, about the future? Matthew, as the New Testament writers were intended to do then, calls us to read Hosea 11 in light of the redemptive future. That takes all of Hosea 11 and puts it into, ultimately, in fulfillment, the future of Hosea's time. A past tense verb. Hosea 11 has everything to do with Jesus, doesn't it? Right? You, you, you get the contrast. God has called two sons out of Egypt over time, according to the text. Israel and Jesus. One of those is guilty of everything God describes throughout Hosea chapter 11. The other isn't guilty of anything. What ties them together, however, is the fact that both of them are Israelites. Jesus Christ is still one of these people. That's going to be extremely important as we work through this to the end. That's the first element of the passage. Hosea 11 is set in the context of Jesus Christ as the faithful and obedient son God called out of Egypt. 
The second element of the passage that helps form the message we're meant to hear is the tension that we see between God's justice and God's mercy. And, and I don't, I don't want to use that word disrespectfully of God, but it's in the text. There is tension here, at least being portrayed in God Himself. It's here. It's like an uncomfortable burr in our boot as we read through Hosea. You feel that. There's this tension. We've been reading about God's resolute purpose throughout this book to judge and eradicate the northern kingdom from the word go for their adultery, for their rebellion. And now, out of nowhere, seemingly in chapter 11, we bump up against what looks like God second-guessing Himself in verses 8 and 9. Do I think that's what God is doing? No. It just looks like it. Right? So, whatever's happening on a completely different scale, but it is happening, God is torn, so to speak, or at least seems to be from our understanding between having to judge Israel for its rebellion and wanting to pardon them in His mercy because He loves them. What are we to make of that? Can that tension be resolved? Yes, and it is in the passage, in light of fulfillment. In the third element that converges with the others to give us the message of Hosea 11. In verses 10 and 11, it begs a question, not only when this roar will come, but how God will do it. And I want to ask you something. Do do we ever read anywhere that God will become or be seen as a lion? Is there an event in Scripture where this apparent tension between God's justice and God's mercy is finally and fully resolved? And beloved, these three things we've talked about reside in the same text because they will happen at the same time in the same person. You know who it is. You know who it is, don't you? You know what Scripture calls that faithful and obedient Israelite son that was called out of Egypt. You know what the Scripture calls him. They call him the Lion of the tribe of Judah. God roared at the cross in Jesus Christ where His holy and just wrath was satisfied and His perfect and saving mercy was completely poured out. It was a roar that drew people to it. When I am lifted up, I will draw all peoples to Myself. In Christ where God's salvation was revealed, then and there we realize, ah, there's no tension in God. It isn't tension. It's the fullest extent of holiness that we are seeing. It's the fullest extent of perfection in God. So now we ask, what is Hosea 11 doing? How is it functioning? It's presenting the nature of God to us, and it's presenting the nature of us to us. That is its purpose. What does the text reveal about us? What is our nature? Hosea's description of Israel's sin and rebellion as the result ultimately of her connection to Adam back in 6-7 lets us know who we all are. What we are all not only capable of but are prone to do. Bent to become. Right? That's how the source of Israel's sin is described here. And our sin is described not just as wickedness and evil, but in light of God's tender, loving, pursuing, relentless love, our rebellion is seen as insane. Right? The result of a lack of knowledge or belief in who God is. That's why we run when He pursues away instead of to Him. Sin has corrupted us so much that we can't see that pursuit is loving. It is the exact same thing, but on a much smaller scale. It's just woven into the DNA of creation when our children do this to us. right? When, when, when we did that to our parents in some way, there's that, that, that's, a, that's a redemptive picture. right? If, if, man, if, let me share this story as quickly as I can. That for me... Uh, just sums up how ludicrous it was in retrospect to reject the care of my 
parents, I didn't have this in my notes, it just occurred to me, to reject the love of my parents in rebellion because I thought it was oppressive. I remember so well in high school how much I hated to wear a coat when it was cold. I, I, I rebelled against wearing a coat like the American revolutionary people rebelled against England. It was that big of a deal. I didn't want to wear a coat. And every morning, I'd, I'd try to head out the door without my coat on. My dad or my mom, what are you doing? It's 20 degrees outside, whatever. Where's your coat? Oh, you know, you get. I know it seems small, but it's rebellion, right? And I'm angry at them. Make me wear a coat. And so what I'd do is I'd, I'd wear my coat, and as soon as I got... Uh, we're out of sight of the house because I had to walk to school there in Dresden, Ohio. When I get out of sight of the house, I'd take my coat off. No matter how cold it was, and I'd carry it the rest of the way. Just, yes, there's, that's, that's just hilarious stupidity, right? Freezing the whole way. Didn't want to wear a coat. Finally, one night, or one morning, my dad said, or one night, my dad said, listen, tomorrow since you don't want to wear your coat, because I got busted, right? I forgot to put it back on walking home. So I came into the house without my coat on, and my dad said, listen, tomorrow I have a very special present for you. And he said, don't leave the house without seeing me first. And I, I knew better than to try. So the next morning, my dad, where he found this, I will never understand, but he showed up in the living room with this coat. Do you remember pictures like from old National Geographics or Jacques Cousteau, those old diver Suits with the weird, you know, the circle helmet, and the, that's what it looked like. It was brown. It was it was a couch formed into a coat of pleather. There's not a doubt in my mind. I, I think he stayed up all night making this out of a couch. It was awful. You he put it on me. You couldn't move in it. Like my my arms were like this. It came down to my ankles. It was way too big for me. It was huge. He followed me so that I couldn't take it off. When I got to school, I couldn't, it wouldn't, my locker wouldn't shut. So I had to carry it around or wear it all day. If Never in my life up to that moment did I hate my dad more than I did all day that day. Right? It was humiliating. Now, I don't want to get choked up. I, I don't. When I, so I'm, I'm walking home wearing that God-awful coat. We didn't have money. My dad was a pastor. We did not have money. My dad did not have money to, to uh, indulge my stupidity, okay, my rebellion. I'm walking up the sidewalk. <clears throat> I see my dad going in the house with a bag from Sears. My dad <laughs> bought me Sorry. My dad bought me a really nice coat. It was really nice. He heard me complaining that I didn't like my coat. It was embarrassing. I didn't want to wear it. I rejected Love, do you see that? He didn't, he just didn't want his son to be cold and get sick. And I treated it as oppression. Now I know that's a small thing. I know it's just one moment among many in your lifetime. But if, if that's of all the mistakes my dad readily admits that he made, all parents do, that moment, for me, trumps all of it. That's what I remember about my dad the most. That stupid brown coat that was just to wake me up to being a rebellious young man, when in reality, his plan was to provide for me so that I would be warm on the way to school. Now, God... There's something, in other words, in, through that, I understood something about my dad that I would not have understood had I not been 
um, had that moment not happened. And when we're reading in the scripture here, it's we that moment revealed to me the pettiness of myself, the lack of understanding in myself, of even for a moment as a young man, of parental love, right? This is what's been happening all through this text. We're finding out who we are. What do our hearts reveal? What do our responses to God reveal? What does our sin reveal about who we really are? We, we are prone to reject love as oppressive. That's a human trait. We are prone to reject love as oppressive, to resent someone else's persistent care of us, because for us the priority is being our own Lord and King. So we will, we are so insane that we will reject love and care from a holy God because we would rather run our own lives. That's our priority. That's how we process even grace. That's what happened in the Garden of Eden. Right? That's what happened there. The, 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 the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You and I were never meant to know the difference because we're not capable as created beings of knowing the difference. Right? We've been created to be dependent on God. We've been created to be recipients of love and care that is stronger than us and better than us. And so sin is just us saying, no, I'll, I'll run my own life. I'll, I'll provide my own clothes. Right? I'll get my own coat. Right? That, that, that's what it is. And Israel has been doing this despite what God had done for her. And they are a picture in that of all humanity. The more God pursues, the more we go away. Look at the words in the text in verse 2. They kept sacrificing to the Baals. In verse 7, the people were bent on turning away from God. That's our instinct. That's our nature. And what's worse, as we see here when God says, I'm not like you. What does He mean? When we're offended, let alone genuinely sinned against. Just offended. How do we most naturally and often respond? We withhold forgiveness at the slightest offenses. Right? We'll, we'll avoid restoration. We'll withhold forgiveness. We'll give a cold shoulder to somebody until we feel they have paid the appropriate price for slighting us or hurting us. Only then will we take people back. When in our minds that are incapable of weighing out what things actually require, we'll just hold stuff over people's heads until we feel like they've met our standard and now, okay, now I can take you back. Right? You ever been in a fight with somebody and you know the right thing to do is, is restore it and make it right, but you're not sure if they feel as guilty as they need to feel about what they did yet, so you withhold it? That's who we are. That's who we are running through the center of the Bible storyline, catch this, is how wicked and merciless sinners are and how holy and merciful God is. How are we still here? So, it begs the question now, what does it really mean to be holy? Right? Because that's God's basis for the way that he feels here. That's part of what Hosea is addressing. And before we even venture a definition, we have to remember that really we are unfit to do such a thing, to define God, that, uh, to define holiness. We, we, don't, we don't really know what that is. It's not something we intuitively grasp. It's something that belongs exclusively to God. Right? Therefore, only God can properly define it. We think, you and I think of holy, the first thing that pops into our minds almost entirely is, is, is we think of holy in terms of moral perfection. Right? The lack of sin or any, anything negative at all. It's, it's much more than that. Holy most fully means that God is separate from us. He's something other than us. And it's precisely because He is not like us that He shows grace and mercy 
even when the evidence demands a guilty verdict and a punishment. So how can God be determined to judge in verses 5 through 7, but then determined to save in verses 8 and 9? Those two things sit uncomfortably beside each other in Hosea, and in Hosea's time they remained unresolved, but they are fully and finally resolved at the cross. Who thought up the cross? Who carried it out? Whose design was it? Why is that the way? Why is that the method? It was God. So what is the hope for people whose hearts reveal that they're irreparably bent away from God? The character and the nature of a holy God. Because the Bible reveals something we would not intuitively be able to understand about what it means to be God. In blazing, incomparable, incomprehensible, immeasurable holiness, there is also at the same time amazing grace. They are not at odds. God is not divided. Right? We, we touched on this this morning. Holiness and grace are not at odds. It feels like tension to us. Do you know why? Because we have no idea what it is to be God. God's grace is not a blemish on His holy character. It's essential to His holy character. Only God is like this. The reality of who the holy God is, is the sinner's only hope for salvation. It's our only hope, is that God is holy. It's our only hope. This is how and why the roaring of God as a lion both terrifies and saves This is how holiness brings us back and doesn't push us away. Because in the ultimate display of just how holy God is and how much His justice requires, the cross of Jesus Christ, God was simultaneously showing the lengths to which He will go to rescue His people and draw them back to Himself. All of them, no matter where they are, in light of this, of fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Oh, that's what this was talking about. When God roars in the lion of the tribe of Judah, God will bring all his people back home. The response then to Hosea 11 is clear, isn't it? In verses 10 and 11, what do we do? We tremble. We tremble. The grace of the one true and holy God was not meant to cause us to hold our chins up high as though we must really be something. We're called to be a trembling people. The holiness that should have destroyed us contains the only mercy that can save us. That is beyond anything we can comprehend or imagine or create. It should make us tremble that God would be so tender with us. right? That God would look on us with love, see all that we really are, see all our natural tendencies woven into our DNA that make us all into people that live to shake our fist in His face and have pity. We don't deserve pity. Jesus dying for us is not a statement ultimately about our worth, but of His. You and I do not deserve to be died for, especially when the one dying for us is the Holy Son of God, Jesus Christ. We're meant to look at the cross and see His value first before we see anything else. We don't deserve pity. Rather than, however... Rather than making us tremble like those in Hosea 10 who cried out for the rocks and mountains to fall on them, God makes all those who come to Him tremble at the massive weight of His redeeming love. We are revealed in Scripture as filled with sin, condemned to death, utterly unable to redeem ourselves and happy about it. Our hope is that God is greater than us. God is greater than our sin. God is greater than our rebellion. 
He is revealed to us in Christ as a lion roaring with the guarantee of eternal love and eternal salvation. Tremble, believer. Tremble. You you know that song, Were You There? Old spiritual. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Sometimes it causes me to tremble. To tremble. To tremble. We could do, all of us, with a little trembling at this love, this roaring, inescapable, pursuing, perfect, redeeming, relentless love of a holy God for sinners. I'm going to pray, sing one last song together. If you need for any reason to come and pray, I'll be here down front. Father, I thank You for Your Word tonight. I thank You, God, that You're holy. The only way a sinner could say such a thing and mean it is if holiness also means grace. And Father, now we know it does. In Jesus, You found everything required for our salvation. And so, Father, we praise You for the hope that we leave this building with tonight. I don't know what's going on in everybody's lives. I don't know who's struggling. Not really. I don't know what's really going on in the hearts of Your people. But, Father, You do. And there are guilty consciences here tonight that need to be soothed by the reality of salvation. There are people here that need to be able to rest. There are people here that will wake up tomorrow to face another week not knowing what will happen the next day from any number for any number of reasons and so father i'm asking for the sake of your people that you will abide and be present and be close roaring and healing all at the same time i ask in the name of jesus christ amen